Now let's pray together. Again, Father, we thank you for all of your goodness and all that you provide for us in this world that you have made. And Father, as we consider these things now, uh, we pray that you'd help me and help us all as we grapple with just these few verses in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Help us to see wonderful things in your word and shape and change our hearts, we pray, for your glory's sake. And in Jesus' name, we ask it all. Amen. So if you could please have your Bible open there at 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're in verses 1 to think. Uh, with obviously Christmas and New Year having just happened, it's been a number of weeks since we were last in 1 Timothy 4, or 1 Timothy as a whole. And so let's just begin by reminding ourselves of what this letter is all about. The Apostle Paul had spent three years in the city of Ephesus. He'd been preaching the gospel there, building up the church there in that great ancient city. And now he's moved on from there. He's elsewhere, uh, continuing his ministry. But he's left behind his young co-worker, Timothy, who is now serving as the minister of that church. And it's a church which is going through a difficult time. Chapter 1 has described what the problem is, essentially. The problem is that false teachers have arisen in this church. They have been preaching different doctrines, things completely at odds with the true gospel. And it has started to undermine the church there. People have started to take in this false teaching. And then having done so, started to drift away from the church. There are some members there who, maybe going back two or three years, would have been real pillars in the church. Faithful members. And now they have left the church. Now they're no longer walking with Jesus faithfully. Maybe they don't even call themselves Christians anymore. And imagine that you're a member of that church in Ephesus. You can imagine what this feels like, can't you? You're thinking to yourself, what on earth is happening to our church? It was all going so well. For three years, we had literally the best preacher in the world here. And he taught us the whole counsel of God. We were a solid church. And yet now look at us. This false teaching has entered the church. And as a result of that, some of our members have, have now left the church. They've not just left the church, they've left the faith altogether. You can imagine, can't you, how troubling this was for the whole church there. And it's why Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. He's giving him very wise, very godly, 
biblical instruction about how to lead the church well through this difficult time. And the verses that we turn to this morning, Paul gives his assessment of what's going on in that church and how to respond to these things. And I want us to look at the, uh, the paragraph on the three headings this morning, the first of which is this, the Spirit says that some will depart from the faith. The Spirit says that some will depart from the faith. And so the first thing that Timothy and the rest of the church there need to know is that God is not surprised by anything that has taken place in that church. Now they might be surprised themselves. And of course they're shocked, they're saddened by what has happened as these people have walked away from the faith. But God is not surprised by this. And in fact, God himself, the Spirit himself, has said that this will happen. God, the Holy Spirit, who reveals truth to the church, has already told us that this kind of thing will happen. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Now, the later times, as Paul describes it here, it means this period of history between the first and the second coming of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit says, in these later times, this last bit of history as we now know it, in which we currently live, in these days we will see people walking away from a Christian profession. Now you might ask, well, where has and where does the Spirit expressly say that this will happen? Well, he said so in numerous places. We could uh, turn to the words of Jesus as he speaks by the Spirit in the Gospels. And he predicts that this kind of thing is going to happen. Matthew 24, Jesus says, Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And even more pertinently, remember what the Apostle Paul prophesied as he spoke to the elders of this very congregation in Ephesus when he met with them in Acts chapter 20. He said to them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. And you see, don't you, those words of Paul in Acts chapter 20, as he spoke prophesying by the Holy Spirit, those words have now come true, just as the Spirit has expressly said, some have departed from the faith in that very church. Now, of course, it's important we, un we don't misunderstand what all of this means. It doesn't mean that if someone has genuinely come to faith in Jesus and has truly turned from sin and has trusted in Jesus and has been brought to new spiritual life in him, that they can, at some later date, lose all of that and go from being saved 
to being unsaved all over again. It doesn't mean that. You cannot lose your salvation because salvation is of the Lord. It is the, the Lord's work to save. And as we promised, none of those that he brings to Christ will ever be lost. So listen to these words from 1 John chapter 2. John here is describing a very similar situation. And he says, they went out from us. That is, they left the church and they left the faith. But they were not of us. If they had have been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. You see, what he's saying is that these people were never truly saved. I'm sure that at one point in time they thought that they were genuinely saved. I'm sure that others in the church thought that they were genuinely saved. But actually, John is saying there in 1 John 2, it was all just on the surface. They were in the church, but they weren't of the church. And that's why they walked away in the end. And it's exactly what had happened in this church in Ephesus as well. Certain members there who, for a while, looked like the genuine article. And then this false teaching came along. And they capitulated to it. And just as the Spirit had expressly said, these people departed from the faith. How do we apply those things as Christians today? Well, first of all, when this happens, and it will happen, don't be surprised by it. Of course, be saddened by it greatly. Of course, pray that people would be restored. Pray that it's only a temporary drifting away, not a permanent turning away. Pray for it and seek the person's restoration. But don't be surprised when this kind of thing happens. The Spirit himself expressly says this will happen. In these later times in which we now live, some will depart from the faith. So don't be surprised. But as well as that, don't be complacent. And don't rest on your laurels and think to yourself, well, I've been raised in a, a Christian environment. I live a, a pretty decent life. I'm fairly regular at church. I must be fine with God. Now this is a, a warning, isn't it? Paul says to the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Peter says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Ask yourself, where do you really stand before God? Are you trusting in Jesus and in him alone for forgiveness, for reconciliation with God, for eternal life? Are you truly saved? And having laid down that principle at the start of the paragraph, Paul then spends the, the next few words describing this false teaching that has come to them. We can sum it up like this. False teaching is demonic, deceitful, and demanding. 
False teaching is demonic, deceitful, and demanding. And notice how Paul touches on those three elements as he goes along. Firstly, this false teaching is demonic. He says that those who depart from the faith are devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And you see, Paul is showing to us here the spiritual dimensions of false teaching. And he's saying that every false gospel, every false religion, every heretical doctrine, every unbiblical philosophy has demonic influence standing behind it. Remember what we were looking at last Sunday evening, if you were here. Uh, we studied Christ's letter to the church in Pergamum in Revelation 2. And we saw there that the devil was attacking that church in two different ways. On the one hand, attacking the church through open persecution. And then on the other hand, this second, much more subtle attack of Satan against the church. And that was the attack of false teaching. Enticing, tempting the members of the church, seeking to draw them away from a faithful walk with Jesus. And you see, at its heart, false teaching is demonic. Paul says to the Corinthians, doesn't he, what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And of course, that's not to say that all false teaching looks demonic on the outside or that it's consciously so from those who teach it. False teaching may look harmless. It will probably look very tolerant, very inclusive, very warm-hearted. But if any teaching is against what scripture says, if any teaching contradicts the gospel and leads people away from trusting in Jesus alone and obeying him, there is a demonic influence at work there. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that is the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. False teaching is demonic, says Paul. And that leads to the second thing about the false teaching, and that is it's deceitful. Notice how Paul describes these demonic spirits as deceitful spirits. And the demons, you see, don't believe the false teaching themselves. In fact, James tells us, doesn't he, in James chapter 2, demons believe the gospel in the sense that they believe that it's true. But the demons aren't interested in telling you what's true. They only want to tell you lies because their master is the father of lies. And so false teaching is intended by demons to deceive people into believing a lie. And in order to do this, they, of course, make use of human agents who join in with the lies. Paul says this teaching of demons comes to us through the insincerity or hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. In other words, Paul is saying to Timothy, those false teachers 
who are troubling your church, they don't even believe the false teaching themselves. They're hypocrites. They're liars. And as well as that, they don't care. Their consciences are seared. Literally, it's the word for cauterized. When something's cauterized, it's, it's burned so that it becomes completely insensitive. Paul says the consciences of these false teachers have been seared or cauterized. And they've spent so long ignoring their conscience that they can now sin and not feel bad about it. It's dangerous, isn't it, to ignore what your conscience says. And so not only do they not believe their own lies, as well as that, they don't care. They feel no remorse about leading people astray from the truth. So the false teaching is both demonic and deceitful. But what actually is it? What is the false teaching? Paul hasn't said yet what these false teachers are actually saying. And we can sum it up like this, that the false teaching is demanding. Demonic, deceitful, and demanding. And what demands does this false teaching place upon people? Well, verse 3, Paul says, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. Now, why on earth are the false teachers saying that? You need to understand that these demands arise out of a particular view of the world that became very prevalent in Greek culture at the end of the the first century and especially in the the second century. It's called Gnosticism. You, You may have heard of it. And what it teaches is basically this, that we can divide creation into two realms, the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And so they believed the spiritual realm is the good bit. Your soul belongs to the spiritual realm. But the physical realm, of which of course your body is a part, that is the the bad bit. And they taught it wasn't created by the true God. It was made by a lesser evil God. And so if you want to be a good person, so they taught, you need to distance yourself as much as possible from the physical, material realm. You just need to be a a good, spiritual person. And with that worldview, you can understand why these false teachers were saying what they were saying. Why they were placing these demands on people. Saying to the, the church, well, you've become Christians and that's okay, but really, if you want to take things to the next level, you've got to listen to what we have to say to you. If you want to be a really good spiritual person, you need to put as much distance as possible between yourselves and any physical pleasures that will just make you dirty. So don't get married. Keep yourself away from sexual pleasure because that's dirty. And of course, you need to eat some food, but don't eat anything that's too tasty. So 
you're not allowed meat. You have to be a vegetarian. And you can't have anything that's too sweet. Just keep your diet as simple and as boring as you possibly can. Just enough to keep you alive and, and nothing more. And if you do those things, then you can be a really super spiritual person. That's exactly the same kind of teaching that Paul is talking about in Colossians 2. I wonder if you've noticed it there. He says to the Christians there, he says, why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And it has to be said that this kind of teaching is not just found in first and second century Greek culture. In many ways, this idea went mainstream. And for the past 2,000 years, up to today, it has been afflicting the church's outlook. It's this notion that if we want to be a really good Christian, not just a Christian, a really good Christian, we need to keep ourselves a safe distance from the things that appeal to the senses. Because getting engaged in, in those things will just make us dirty. Crops up time and time again, doesn't it? Throughout history, there have been parts of the church that have said that, that physical beauty should be suppressed, it should be hidden away. There have been parts of the church that have said that sex is a shameful thing, it's a necessary evil, and therefore taking a vow of chastity and remaining single is a, a more spiritual thing than getting married. There have been parts of the church that have said that you need to stop eating certain foods, at least for certain weeks of the year or certain days of the week. There have been parts of the church that have shunned the enjoyment of, of all sorts of entertainment or certain types of music. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Of course, as Christians, there are things we need to say no to if we're going to be obedient to Jesus. Of course, as we know, we're, we're called, aren't we, to a life of self-control. Self-control is one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. As Christians, we ought to be self-controlled people. And, of course, some people are called to singleness. That's what they're called to in life. And at times, as Christians, it's a good thing that we fast. We fast from food for a while and focus on prayer. That's something we should be doing as Christians. But that's not the kind of thing that Paul is referring to here. Here, you see, he's referring to this kind of teaching that forbids what God allows. That's it in a nutshell. That's what he's putting his finger on here, isn't it? Forbidding what God allows. And sometimes we're very good at making sure that we don't allow what God forbids. And of course, that's a, a very good thing. But you see here, Paul is saying we need to be just as careful 
to make sure that we don't forbid what God allows. And when we say, well, Christians should never do that. Christians should never touch that. Christians should never taste that. We need to pause then and ask ourselves, well, am I trying to forbid something that actually God allows? So how will Paul answer this kind of teaching? Well, to answer this kind of teaching, he gives them a robust understanding of the doctrine of creation. A robust understanding of the doctrine of creation. That's the answer here. And notice Paul makes three important points about creation at the end of the paragraph. Firstly, what God created is good. What God created is good. That's what he's saying, isn't it, at the start of verse 4. For everything created, everything God created is good. And the false teachers were saying that the physical realm's bad. You need to stop yourself from indulging in its pleasures. And Paul's response is to say, no, everything created by God is good. And that includes the physical realm. And so he takes us back, first of all, to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the account of creation. And he reminds us, doesn't he, of God's own assessment of everything that he has made. At the end of each of the six days of creation, God looked at what he'd made. And what did he declare it to be? It is good. God looked at what he'd made and it was good. And in particular, in the context of this false teaching, marriage and food are declared good by God in those first two chapters of the Bible. He creates food for the creatures to eat. Then in Genesis 2, he institutes marriage and all the benefits that come to us and to the whole world through the institution of marriage. What God created is good. Food is good. Marriage is good. Forests and lakes and mountains and birds and fish, music, laughter, family, friendship. It's all good. What God created is good. And then secondly, Paul says, what God created is not to be rejected, but received with thanksgiving. And these false teachers with their joyless, boring demands are trying to make the Christians reject the good things that God has created. Paul says that is completely the wrong view of creation. Don't reject it. Receive it with thanksgiving. In the final chapter of this book, Paul describes God as the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He provides us with everything to enjoy. There's a reason why God made food tasty and honey sweet and drinks refreshing and sex pleasurable and music enjoyable and jokes funny and exercise invigorating and flowers pretty and mountains majestic and sunsets beautiful. Why did God make all of these things like that? The Bible's answer is these things are for our enjoyment. 
And I know the devil and his demons will keep on telling you otherwise, but believe it or not, God wants you to enjoy the things that he has created. Now, of course, we need to enjoy them in the right way, don't we? That's why Paul adds, doesn't he, here, we must receive them with thanksgiving. And we can't enjoy God's gifts with thanksgiving to him if at the same time we're abusing them and misusing them. But if we're receiving these good gifts with thanksgiving to God and therefore using these gifts in the way that God has told us to use them, then in our Christian liberty, the Bible says we're free to enjoy them. In fact, it's more than that. We're commanded to enjoy them. God is not pleased when we, we try to be super spiritual and reject what he has made for us, like the false teachers were saying. No, God is pleased when we receive, enjoy, and give thanks for what he has made for us. And then thirdly and finally, what God created is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? What does Paul mean when he he says that? Well, really, the third point here is summing up those first two points that Paul has made about creation. When Paul says that what God has created is made holy by the word of God, again, he's pointing us back to Genesis in particular and other parts of the scriptures as well where God in his word has declared what he has made to be good and to be enjoyed by us. And when Paul says that it's made holy by prayer, he means our thankful reception of those things that God has made for us. So John Stott sums it up helpfully like this. He says, marriage and food and all God's many other creation gifts are consecrated or made holy twice over. First and foremost, objectively, since God made them, gave them to us to enjoy, and has said so in Scripture, made holy by the word of God. Then secondly, they're consecrated to us subjectively when we recognize their divine origin and receive them from God with gratitude, made holy by prayer. In a similar way, someone has written of God's word to man, warranting him to use the creation gift and man's word to God, acknowledging the gift and asking his blessing on it. And this, you see, is how to respond to the kind of teaching that tries to forbid what God allows. Paul says here, doesn't it? It's answered by a robust understanding of the doctrine of creation summed up in these three ways. What God created is good. What God created is not to be rejected, but received with thanksgiving. And what God created is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. So let's pray to him now. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are our creator and you're the creator of all things. And that you, as well as this, have been wonderfully gracious and kind and generous towards us. And you've filled this creation with things for our enjoyment. All the delight that food brings to us and all the joy that marriage can bring to us. And as well as that, a million other things teeming in this creation, 
which you have placed here for us to enjoy, music and mountains and sport and art and literature and animals and friendship and laughter. All the sights and smells and sounds and touch and tastes that heighten our experience of life every day. And Father, we delight in your good creation. And we know that the devil hates it. And as we've seen this morning, the devil and his demons stand behind every teaching that seeks to reject creation. Every teaching that seeks to put a stop to the enjoyment of it by forbidding what you allow us. And so we pray that you'd help us to be wise in these things. Help us never to get sucked into this kind of worldview that will forbid what you allow. And help us instead to recognize that everything you made is good. And you've given it to us for our enjoyment. Help us to receive it with thanksgiving, enjoying it the way that you tell us to. Because it's made holy by your word and by prayer. And all of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.